This episode contains graphic and disturbing content, specifically the deaths of children. If the subject matter makes you uncomfortable, or if there are children present, you may wish to listen at a later time or go back and enjoy a previous episode. Again, listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey guys, and welcome back another episode of the Salty Canadian Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. I would love to thank A.D. Burr for the listener discretion warning at the beginning of the episode. She does have her own podcast called The Southern Grimoire. Be sure to go check it out. As always, all links will be posted in the show notes so you'll be able to find every there. And I just want to wish everybody... So today we will be discussing the Villisca Axe Murder House in Villisca, Iowa. The murders took place on Thursday, June 13th, 1912. So we'll go through some history, what happened, the victims, what happened at trial, suspects, folklore, and some other stuff. All information that I have gathered is from the uh, Villisca website, which is www.villiscaiowa.com. So it gives you all the information about the house and stuff. So I have got all my information there. Nothing will seem plagiarized. Just have a bit of a word beforehand. I do still have a slight cold, so if it sounds kind of off, then... That is why. So what we'll first start off with is the crime. Long before serial killers and mass murders had become a way of life, two adults and six children were found brutally murdered in their beds in the small midwestern town of Villisca, Iowa. During the weeks that followed, life in this small town had drastically changed. Residents of the small town reinforced their locks, they openly carried weapons, and huddled together while sleeping. Newspaper reporters and private detectives all flooded the streets while there was accusations, rumors, and suspicions ran rapid among friends and families. Bloodhounds were brought in. Law enforcement agencies from neighboring counties and states joined forces. Hundreds of interviews filled thousands of pages, and yet the mystery murders still remained unsolved and the murder was never punished. So June 9th and 10th of 1912, Lena and Ina Stillinger, the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger, left their home for church early on a Sunday morning. They had planned to have dinner with their grandmother after morning service and spending the afternoon with her and then returning to her home to spend the night after the children's day exercises concluded. The girls, however, 
were invited by Catherine Moore to spend the night at the Moore home instead. So prior to leaving the exercises, Mr. Moore placed a call to the Cylinder home to ask permission for the girls to basically stay the night. Blanche, or Blanche, however you want to pronounce it, was Lena and Ina's sister, older sister. She told Mr. Moore that her parents were both outdoors, but she would pass the message along to them. So the Children's Day program took place at the Presbyterian Church. It was an annual event and began at approximately 8 p.m. on the evening on the Sunday evening of June 9th, according to the witnesses, Sarah Moore coordinated the exercise, and all of the Moore children were there, as well as the Cylinder girls participated. Josiah Moore sat in the congregation, and the program ended at about 9.30, and the Moore, form, Moore family, along with the Cylinder sisters, walked home from the church, and they were to believe to have entered their home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. So, the next morning, at approximately 5 a.m., Mary Peckham, the Morris next-door neighbor, stepped out into her own yard to do her, well, hang her laundry. Then, at approximately 7 a.m., she had realized that the Morris had not been outside, but they had also not started their chores and that house itself seemed to be unusually still. Between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary had approached the house and knocked on the door. And when she had received no response, she attempted to open the door to only find that it was locked from the inside. After letting out Morris chickens, who goes out and just lets out somebody else's chickens, that's just really weird. Mary had placed a call to Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, setting into place one of the most mismanaged murder investigations to ever be undertaken. So based on the testimonies of Mary Peckham and those who had saw the Moores at the Children's Day exercise, believed that between midnight and 5 a.m., an unknown assailant had entered the home of J.B. Moore and brutally murdered all of the occupants of the house with an axe. So before we go any further with the murders, I am just going to go over who the victims who were murdered in the house were and basically what they have done. So we're going to start with the father of four children, who is Josiah B. Moore. He was one of Velisca's most prominent businessmen. At the time of his death, he was survived by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Cece Moore of Villisca. He had brothers, John Moore of Summerfield, Kansas, George Moore of Portland, Oregon, Ben Moore of Red Oak, James Charlie Ross and Harry of Villisca, and sisters, Miss George Fisher of Villisca, and Miss Minnie Moore of Omaha. Josiah married Sarah Montgomery on December 6th of 1899 at the home of her parents. Josiah and Sarah Moore had four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Josiah had been a resident of Villisca for 13 years and was employed by Frank Jones at the Jones store for nine years. 
Next, we have Thera Montgomery, so his wife. She was born in Knox County, Illinois in 1873 and moved to Iowa with her parents, Mr. and Mrs. John Montgomery and her sister Mary in approximately 1894. She was 39 years old and the mother of four children when she was murdered in her bed. Sarah was an active member of the Presbyterian Church and led the Children's Day exercises on June 9th. The survivors for her were included her parents, Miss Mary Van Gilder, her sister, Faye Van Gilder, her niece, Lee Van Gilder, her nephew, and Miss Mary Kingen, who was the grandmother who lived with the Montgomery family. Among the suspects immediately after the murders was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder, the ex-husband of Sarah's sisters. Mary Van Gilder had a few previous brushes with law enforcement and was known to be prone to violence. Although he and his wife had divorced, there was apparently enough bad blood between the two for him to be a suspect, but later on he was cleared. Next, we'll talk about the children of Josiah and Sarah. Herman was the eldest of the Moore children and was born in 1901 and was 11 years old at the time of his death. It was said that Herman was quite his father's son and was often seen at his side. Then we had Catherine. She was born two years after Herman in 1903, was 10 years old when she was killed. The Stillander sisters, Lena and Ina, were close friends and it was Catherine's request that they spent the night with the Moore family on the ninth night in 12. Boyd and Paul were the youngest of the Moore children, aged seven and five, respectively at the time of their murders. Only one photograph of the two boys has ever been presented. The photographs I will post on my Instagram page and all my other social media sites were obviously taken when the boys were much younger than they were at the time of their death in 1912. Next, we'll talk about the Stillinger sisters. Lena Gertrude Stillinger and her sister Ina May were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger. Both girls were born on the Stillinger family farm just outside of Villisca. Lena was 12 years old when she was murdered and from the position of her body, it was concluded that she was the only victim that had attempted to fight off her attacker. Many experts have also suggested that Lena was the victim of some type of sexual molestation by her killer. Ina May and Lena had seven, seven surviving siblings, Edith, Ed, Lester, David, Blanche, Ralph, and Ada Lou, both members of the Presbyterian Church and the Junior Society. They participated in with the Moore children in the Children's Day activities at the Presbyterian Church on the night of their murders. Ina was eight at the time of her death. The Stillinger sisters were buried side by side in the Villisca Cemetery. Go back to that morning. Upon arriving at the home, Josiah's brother Ross attempted to look into a bedroom window and then knocked on the door and shouted, attempting to raise someone inside the house. When that failed, he produced his own set of keys, found one that opened the door. Miss Peckham had followed him onto the porch, but she did not enter the parlor. 
Ross went no farther than the room off the parlor. He had opened the door. He saw two bodies on the bed and dark stained bedclothes. He had returned to the porch and immediately told Miss Peckham to call the sheriff. The two bodies in the downstairs room were Lena, age 12, and Ina, age 8, house guests of the Moore children. The remaining members of the Moore family were found upstairs in the bedrooms by City Marshal Hank Horton, who arrived shortly. Every single person in the house had been brutally murdered. Their skulls crushed as they slept. So they were Josiah Moore, age 43, Sarah Moore, age 39, Herman, age 11, Catherine, age 9, Boyd, age 7, Paul, age 5, as well as the Cylinder Sisters. So now we're going to go on to the crime scene, which may have some graphic details, so I apologize ahead of time, and this is just another listener discretion warning. So once the murders were discovered, the news traveled very, very quickly in the small town. Neighbors and curious onlookers all converged on the house. Law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene, which... Number one thing is you cannot lose control of your crime scene. And we have seen that before with, like, the O.J. Simpson case, where they just let everybody trample around the house. And same with the John Bonet Ramsey case, where they had friends and families over and they just trampled all through the house. It was said that up to 100 people trapezed through the house, gawking at the bodies before the Villisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and secure the house. These are the only known facts regarding the scene of the crime. So here are those disturbing facts. Eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with the axe that was left at the scene. It had appeared that all had been asleep at the time of the murders. Doctors estimated the time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. Curtains were drawn on all of the windows in the house except which did not have curtains. Those windows were covered with clothing belonging to the, fam- to the Moore family. All victims were covered with bedclothes after they were murdered. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of Josiah and Sarah's bed. The chimney was off and the wick had been turned back. The chimney was found under the dresser. A similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the cylinders. Cylinder Girls, the chimney was also off. The axe was found in the room accompanied by the Cylinder Girls. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe off, wipe it off. The axe belonged to Josiah Moore. I love when the killer finds something of the family to kill them with. The ceilings in the parents' bedroom and children's room all showed gouge marks, apparently made by upswing of the axe. A piece of kitchen was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom. A pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table, as well as a plate of uneaten food. Gotta love when they leave their food behind, too. The doors were all locked. The bodies of Lena and Ina Cylinder were found in the downstairs bedroom off the parlor. Ina was sleeping closest to the wall with Lena on her right side. A gray coat covered her face. Lena, according to the inquest testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams, 
lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over but just a little. Apparently she had been struck in the head and squirmed down the bed perhaps one third of the way. Luna's nightgown was slit up and she was wearing no undergarments. There was a blood stain on the inside of her right knee and what the doctor assumed was a defensive wound on her arm. Dr. Lindquist, the coroner, reported a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom lying near the axe. Bacon is just a weird choice. Weighing nearly two pounds, it was wrapped in what he thought may be a dish towel. A second slab of bacon about the same size was found in the icebox. So it was clear that it had bacon. Lindquist also made note of one of Sarah's shoes, which he had found on Josiah's side of the bed. The shoe was found on its side. However, it had blood inside as well as under it. It was Lindquist's assumption that the shoe had been upright when Josiah was first struck and that the blood ran off the bed into the shoe. He believed the killer later returned to the bed to inflict additional blows and then knock the shoe over. Had these murders been committed today, it is almost certain law enforcement would have easily solved the crime and brought the murderer to justice. But almost a thousand hundred years later, not a thousand, a hundred. However, the Villisca axe murders still remain a mystery. The murderer or murderers are probably long dead by now and their gruesome secret has been buried with them. In hindsight, it is very easy to blame the officials at this time for what could have only been considered a gross mismanagement of what little evidence they have remained. Important, however, that we realized in 1912, fingerprinting was still a fairly new venture and DNA testing was unimaginable. Although local druggists had the forethought to attempt to enter the crime scene with his camera, he was promptly thrown out. Even if the crime scene had been secured, the evidence would have not provided any really clue, real clues. There was no central database for fingerprints, so even if they had been recovered, the murderer would have been apprehended for comparison. Prince may have either convicted or cleared Kelly in Mansfield, Frank Jones, however, was suspected only of masterminding the plot, not actually committing the murders himself. Fingerprints would not have exonerated him. So next we'll talk about the coroner's jury gathered for inquest that took place on the 19th of 1912. The county coroner, Dr. Lindquist, arrived at the scene of the crime at approximately 9 a.m. Several hours after the discovery of the murders, after he viewed the crime scene himself, he later met with John Henry Hank Horton, the night watchman, and Sheriff Oren Jackson to review the information they had collected. Lindquist called members of the coroner's jury together in the late afternoon. It was several hours later before they actually entered the Moore home to view the bodies after 10 p.m. before he and County Attorney Ratcliffe finally gave permission to the undertaker to remove the bodies. That's a long time for the bodies to be sitting there. The fire station had been set up as a temporary morgue 
and it was close to 2 a.m. before all the bodies were transported. On June 11th, the coroner's jury covened for the inquest. 14 witnesses were called to testify. So I'm just going to list a bit and give kind of a little rundown of what they were interviewed for. The first was obviously Mary Peckham. She was the Moore's next-door neighbor, and first she noticed anything was amiss at the house. Um, so yeah, we've been through what she had said. The next is Ed Selly, the second witness. He was employed by Josiah Moore at his implement dealership. Ed had arrived to tend to the animals. He testified that Monday morning, June 10th, he had opened the store and received a telephone call from Ross, Josiah's brother. Ross had asked him if he knew where Josiah was. Then Sally called the elder Morris home to see if he had gone to visit his father. Josiah's mother told him that he had not been there. And Sally received a call from Mary Peckham asking, who asked him if Josiah was at the store and told him that the livestock needed tending to. Sally left the house and went to feed the horses. Then returning to the store, he received another call telling him to bring the marshal to the house quick. According to his testimony, Ross and Peckham entered the house before he returned with the marshal. When they arrived, they all re-entered together. After seeing the blood on the bed in the downstairs bedroom, he left the house. And while waiting outside, Sally was met by Harry Moore. And according to Sally, when... Marshall Horton came out of the house. He commented that there was somebody dead or they had been killed in every bed. At the time, the house was locked. Marshall left to call for the coroner and the sheriff. Sally returned to the store to call the John Deere people in Omaha and alert them of the news. Then returned to the house with his father after making the call to Omaha but did not re-enter. He was questioned at the inquest about possible enemies of Joe Moore, which is what they called Josiah. He admitted that Joe mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. He, Joe, says, I got a brother-in-law that don't like me. Said he would get even with me sometime. That brother-in-law he was referring to was Sam Moyer. Kelly denied having any other information regarding anyone who would have wanted the Moore family and was excused. Next was Dr. J. Clark Cooper. He was the third one to be at the inquest. He was the first physician to arrive on scene. Um, testified that he was called to the Moore home at approximately 8.15 on the morning of June 10th when Hank Horton entered his office and said, come with me. When asked why, Horton appeared extremely frightened and replied, for Moore and his family were murdered in bed. He'd accompany Horton to the house, waited outside while he re Horton received the keys from the Peckhams. When he returned, Cooper Horton, Dr. Howe, and the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Ewing, entered the house together. Uh, Horton to Cooper, the group stepped into the dining room and then into the first bedroom, and all they could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the covers with the blood on the pillow, he went over and lifted the covers and saw what he supposed was a body. Some entire stranger and a mere child at back, only two in the bed. Then they stepped out into the parlor. Then I guess they just went through the house and they found everybody else. And 
He estimated that they had been dead for at least five to six hours. He also testified that he smelled an unusual or antiseptic odor in the house and that it seemed that the faces of the victims had been covered after they were murdered. I said no clothes sticking into any wounds in my superficial exam examination. Neither did I see any clothes that had holes in it. I mean, after any of the sheets or pillows, nothing had holes. Next was Jesse Moore. So Mrs. Moore was the wife of Josiah's brother, Ross, and took the phone call from Mrs. Peckham. And they basically just went through all her stuff. Number five was Dr. F.S. Williams. He was the physician that actually examined the bodies. Um, testified that Ed Selly stopped him on the street in the morning of June 10th, told him that the doctor wanted, was wanted at the house for an examination. So he went through and, yeah, and he claims he did not spill any odor of anesthetics and nothing seemed to be out of place and the faces of the bodies remained covered. Um, and then he went on to describe the placement of the bodies which I won't get into, and he went and seen the little, went down and examined the Dillinger girls and was questioned about a possibility of a sexual assault. He responded negative. He said, I looked to see if there's any possible might have been attempted intercourse or rape or something. He did not see any, and he said that there was no footprints found at the scene. Next is Edward Landers. He's a summer visitor to his mother's home near the Moore's house. And he basically testified that he was visiting his mother for the summer, was staying there. He testified he went to bed shortly after 9 p.m. on Sunday evening. Before he fell asleep, however, he hears the sounds of that impressed him and sound like one boy hooting for another uh, on the outside somewhere. And it wasn't a sound that recurred at regular intervals but he didn't connect anything and fell asleep. Lander said he settled on approximately 11 p.m. Further testified, though he didn't think any of it at time the next morning when he heard about the murders. It occurred to him that the sounds may have been a woman moaning. The only strangers Landers admitted to seeing in the area of the Moore home were paper cleaners that had stopped by his mother place at approximately 10.15 Saturday night. He couldn't shed any light on Moore, so he was dismissed and sent home. Next, we have Ross Moore. He was, like I said, Josiah's brother and the first person to enter the house. So they basically went over everything with him on what happened. Fenwick Moore, which is the eighth witness, was another brother of Josiah Moore's. He was also satisfied he didn't know much about those business affairs and no, had no idea of who wanted him dead. Marshall Hank Horton was up next, spent little time on the stand. He just simply confirmed he was approached by Sally between 8.15 and 8.30 Monday morning and basically came across bodies. Lee Van Gilder and Harry Moore is Josiah's nephew and brother. Um, they admitted to briefly talking to Josh on Saturday afternoon and they had no knowledge of his personal business or affairs so they couldn't really add anything to that. Blanche and Joseph Stillinger are the sister and father of Lena and Ina and they basically just went over when Blanche talked to Joe 
Josiah Moore about the girls staying the night. And they were excused. He talked to their father. And he knew nothing, basically. And apparently they had called the house in the morning. And, yeah. And last but not least was Charles Moore, which is another of Josiah's brothers. He basically gave his testimony. He couldn't identify the axe, but it believed to be the murder weapon as Joe did keep one in the coal shed. And it was believed that it was habit for Joe to lock up the house from the inside when they went to sleep. And this is just a quote for him. I went there several mornings after the team to go in country. And of course, I always went into the dining room in the front and they would not have the door open. And I would have to wait until someone came and opened the door, would lock the rest of the house inside and that the door and key kept was kept inside. So those were basically all the witnesses uh, for the nice inquest. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to cut it off. I will continue with the episode next week. We'll continue with the suspects, the rumors, and what is going on with the house now. So that I don't just continually run on, run on talking about it. So like I said, all the the links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to join the podcast group. All you have to do is search Salty Canadian Podcast Rant Room. Tell me what you think of this episode. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram. We have a Facebook page. It's it's just called the Salty Canadian Podcast. Once again, go check out Katie Burr's podcast, Southern Grimoire, and make sure you head over to iTunes and, or as they like to call it, Apple Podcasts, to rate and review the podcast if you like it. Patreon rewards have been updated, so if you want to just go look up the Healthy Canadian Podcast on Patreon and you can have your donations there as I still have stickers and have added some fancy other prizes as well to those which will be sent out shortly. So, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys their Halloween. Like I said, I'll have the rest of the episode out for you next week. So, don't be salty and have a great day. Hey.